Check one, check one. Working. Like this? Do you want to hear it with the uh, headphones? You want to see what it feels like? Yeah, yeah, I do. Hello. Whoa. Do you like think you like that? Yeah, I do. It's funny that I can't hear through the headphones. Mm-hmm. All right. So do you want to introduce the podcast, this episode? What episode is it? 50. And with who? Well, remember, that's the thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I don't know what to say. You could say, hello and welcome to episode 50 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. <sighs> One second. Take your time. I need to just... I like hearing it with the headphones. It's fun, right? Welcome to episode 50 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This episode features poet, teacher, and podcast host, Rachel Zucker. And she's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what question do you have for me? Um, When you sit down mm-hmm. and you want to write... Well, first of all, do you sit down and do you say, I want to write a poem and start writing? No. Or do you, someone come to you and then you sit down? Uh, well, first of all, it's not the same every time. I don't have like a big system that I stick to, but that's a really good question. Um, I would say most of the time what happens is I'm at a reading or I'm on the bus or I'm with you or I'm, I'm doing something else, definitely not sitting at my desk writing a poem, and I hear a piece of language or a word that's used in a way that, I, that it's, maybe it's misused or something. And um, it sort of, it interests me and it sticks in my head. Or maybe I wake up early in the morning and I have like a a thought of something I want to write about or usually a line of a poem and so I try to hold on to it and I like repeat it in my mind a few times to almost like memorize it and then if I sometimes I'll write it down in a notebook um, if I have or a piece of paper if I have one with me or later I'll go to write the poem and then I'll start with that piece but it's almost never that I'm like, you know what, I should write a poem today. And I sit down and it's quiet and I start writing something. Mm, that's interesting. And when do you decide, because obviously you have to at some point sit down and start writing the mm-hmm. poem. So at what point do you decide that you're going to sit down and write it? Well, I haven't written a lot of poems recently. Um, but I think the process has been kind of the same for a really long time. So a lot of times I'll start writing when I'm supposed to be doing something else. Like either if I'm in a reading, like listening to other people at a public reading, reading their poems, I'll write, I'll start writing then and then I'll go home and finish. Or sometimes I write if I can't sleep, um, in the middle of the night or sometimes, um, I'm not teaching right this, this semester, but, um, I sometimes have free writing in the beginning of class for my students and I'll write then. Um, Or if I'm supposed to be writing, uh, reading other people's poems, like often if I sit down to read a book, I will write then. So, and also another one. Okay. Um, Do you consider yourself more a podcast host, a writer, or a teacher? 
do you consider me more a podcast host, a writer, a teacher? I think a writer. Uh huh. But if someone asked me what your job was, uh huh, I might. There's a chance I would say teacher. Uh huh. But I wouldn't say. I would say, oh, and she has a podcast. Or right. I, I usually wouldn't say podcast host. I think t- telling people you're a teacher is the easiest thing to explain. Like, oh, my mom is a teacher. Like, people understand that. Whereas if you say, have you ever told someone my mom is a poet? Yeah. And what's their response? Like, that's, that's not a job. No. No yeah. one ever says that. No, oh, that's say, awfully like, nice. They that's, say, that's interesting or that's... <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you said writer first, even though you, you've you seen me doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. You've never seen me teach, I don't think. No. And you don't see me write. Uh-huh. And I haven't read your books. Yeah. You hear me talk a lot about both writing and teaching. Yeah. I, but you also talk about the podcast. I do. I do. What's the main purpose of the podcast? Oh, God, right to the heart of the matter you go. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, the. Uh, does that mean I have to pick one? Yeah, or two, but not more. To try something new. Okay. To make a community. Okay, I, but trying something new is not a good one. Because that's just... That was the main one. Yeah, but I don't understand that one because you could do anything. Why podcasts of anything? Oh, okay. So to make a community or maybe another way to say that would be to have contact with other people face-to-face. Okay, that's one. That's the podcast in particular. Other poets. Yeah. Poets and other people. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but not just poets, also the listeners. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So that's that I guess is number one. And why did if I wanted to try something new, why did I pick po- a podcast? Yeah. Uh because I love podcasts and because I thought I could make one. Any other questions? Um No. Is there anything that you feel like listeners should know about me in order to like trust me as the host of this podcast or uh, you know, like what would help? What do they need to know, if anything? What What don't they know that I do know? Well, I don't know. What do you know? A lot. <laughs> um, do you think I ha- I have a bias that you should know that you should reveal, or do you feel like I have any habits as a listener or as a speaker? Uh. Bias towards mm. Like, is there something I'm always interested in? No. You're interested in... Um, you tend to be interested in things that are, like, very abstract. Uh-huh. Or something that's, like, amazingly not abstract. Can you give an example? Like, well... It can kind of work for any form of art. So even just in this room, Uh there's stuff like that, which is very abstract, that 
yes. that painting with no really doesn't have a, a image in it that's clear. Uh-huh. I like it a lot too. Uh-huh. And then you also like things like um, you also really like photography, which is almost always has you know like an, an image. Right. You know. Okay. Can you do one more favor? Um, can you say, uh, like, can you give my, a little bio for me? Rachel Zucker is the author of nine books, the host of Commonplace Podcasts, okay. and also a teacher at NYU. And she, she hasn't yet, wait, can I start over? Sure. Rachel Zucker is the author of nine books, and, wait, uh, no, I got it. Rachel Zucker is the author of nine books, the host of Commonplace Podcast, and also a teacher of poetry at NYU. Right now, she's working on her newest book, The Poetics of Wrongness. Uh, and her most recent book is um, Pedestrian and Mother. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, this is Christine LaRusso, one of the producers of Commonplace. I'm a poet and I just finished a residency at Lake Forest College where I worked on a manuscript that I hope will become my first book. Rachel was my teacher at Fordham where I did my undergraduate degree and a few years later at NYU where I got my MFA. For our 50th episode, we wanted to give listeners a glimpse into the makings of Commonplace and especially into the background and motivations of your host, Rachel. Although every episode is unique, Rachel envisioned Commonplace as an experiment in conversation, as a form of literary and aesthetic investigation, community building, and connection. So Rachel wanted to reveal more about herself, her work, her personal life, the history of Commonplace, and the pleasures and challenges of making this podcast through conversation. You just heard from her youngest son, Judah. You're about to hear a conversation between Rachel and poet and critic Yin Yi. Yin Yi chose Rachel to be his mentor as a part of his Margins Fellowship with the Asian American Writers Workshop. Later in the episode, you'll hear a very brief excerpt from a long conversation Rachel recorded with her husband, Joshua Gorin, and then a follow-up call that Rachel recorded with Yin Yi. In this next segment, Rachel and Yin Yi talk about what it's like hosting the podcast, teaching, gender, listening, mental health, privilege, and much more. Their follow-up conversation offers you a bit more context about their relationship and dive deeper into issues around identity and writing. In 2018, Yin Yi won the Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize, awarded by Carl Phillips for his first book, The Year of Blue Water. He is currently a 2017-2018 Asian American Writers Workshop Margins Fellow and Associate Editor at Foundry. He will be attending NYU as a poetry MFA student beginning next fall. Here are Rachel and Yin Yi. After you asked me, first of all, I was like really excited to do it. And when I'm excited because I'm a Virgo rising, I like totally am like, all right, the complete edition. I'm going to read all of the things. Mm. But then I read all these things and then I was like, oh, I just want to have a conversation. Like I have like all these questions written out on my phone. And yeah. like, I thought you were going to say, I read all these things and I just had one question and it was... <laughs> Why did you write so many things? No. <laughs> I think that's a really good question. Well, like, 
one for partially for the reason that like I feel like a lot of your work is about writing all the things, isn't mm. it? So like a good question for you in particular and that wasn't even the question that I wanted to start out with because (laughs) well something that I was kind of wondering was like we do have a relationship outside of the show Mm -hmm. and should we talk about that as a way to frame the conversation of like who we are to each other sure so um I'm Yin Yi and I am an Asian American Writers Workshop fellow and I asked for you to be my mentor for um my fellowship year and that was its own adventure because you had some questions about possibly doing that um but so far the the journey as they say in reality tv um has been fantastic and i'm really honored to be here to talk to you about your work and i'm so excited that it exists in the world and the how it's going to give other people permission to do what you've been doing. I think it's uh, like the first question that I wanted to start out with was why did you start Commonplace? Like what what was it that uh, you felt was missing in the podcast space or in the space of like the, um, the U.S. poetry community at large? Um, or the English-speaking poetry community at large um, that you wanted to create in the show. And um, it made me think about, as I was formulating this question, I was thinking about, like, I don't remember how I discovered Commonplace, Mm. and I don't remember if it had been before or after I saw you at Sarah Lawrence last year. Right. Um, But I really immediately was, like yes, this is exactly what I want to be listening to right now. Um, Previously, I had just been like reading a bunch of like Paris review interviews. Like um, I have this thing where I'm like really into Susan Sontag. Mm -hmm. Like it's been more than a while now. But uh, like I basically just Google YouTube for interviews with her when I'm like cleaning the house and or like doing doing something in my life and that's because I'm thirsty for uh conversations around aesthetics and about like what art we should be making in our present moment um and and what needs to happen so I was excited to um hear Commonplace because I had been following like Poetry Foundation and uh, Bookworm and all those other podcasts that are out there um but yeah, I just really liked the questions that you're asking. I think you're engaged with questions around uh, race, gender, sexuality, uh, and trying to be accountable about things uh, about those things when you uh, see them and recognize them. Um, so, yeah, that's what made me continue listening because mm. oftentimes you can start listening to something, get really excited about it, and then it's kind of just like, oh, well, this is just another another conversation that's within the canon, mm-hmm. um, the canon, capital T to capital C. Um, so what's your take on why you started Commonplace? Um, so I have like a lot of different answers to that. Love it. <laughs> and one was um, I had just finished um, this series of lectures that I was giving through the Bagley Wright lecture series. And that was an incredible experience for me. And it wasn't the very end, but I had a break from um, 
April until the following November, which was a long time. Um, and the experience of doing the lectures was very profound, um, very gratifying, very disruptive, and it was difficult to end them or even to take a break. Um, and so, and I've told some of these things in pieces on the podcast before, and at almost each location that I went to, um, I ended up first of all, like really valuing the Q and a at the end of the, of the lecture, like that was my favorite part to hear uh, what people wanted to know or comments that they had, but also that that kind of attention. It was it was the enlightenment of the actual questions, but also just like it blew me away that that there was a room full of people, even if it was a small room, um, who had just sat there and listened to me talk for like 45 minutes and then wanted to stay and talk more. And and so I started to notice that like I had really mixed feelings about giving lectures, but I had no mixed feelings about having a conversation about poetry. So that was one thing I noticed. And then there were the conversations around the lectures that I had while I was traveling. Not all, but many of them were with middle-aged women um, who were talking about like where they were in their lives. And everybody seemed to be having a similar set of midlife questions um, and questions that were very much about poetry and that were very much not about poetry and the intersection between those two things or the way in which, you know, someone who maybe I didn't know very well, but then I was talking to them and then I found out like how they lived or their passions or their hobbies. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, that is so fascinating. Now I understand your work in a different way or, and also had the experience of presenting myself anew to every person. Um, and that was really fascinating. Um, then each time I give a lecture, I would come home and it was, it was difficult to come home. It was difficult to, uh, you know, walk in the door and be asked like, where are my boots? And, you know, throw away the food that had gone bad. And, um, and, and, to, and to deal myself with the ambivalence and the guilt of having been gone, having liked being gone, um, feeling that this was really important for me to do for myself and for my, for my family, for my husband and for my sons to see me doing this kind of work and enjoying it, but also that there was a cost. Um, and to, to manage the feelings around that um, was really hard. Um, so there was a real sense of loss for me that the lectures, even though the lectures were very stressful to write and, and to some extent I was like, oh my God, this is just destroying my family and me. I also didn't want them to be over. And I felt like, well, I'll never be invited to go read anywhere or speak anywhere ever again. And I'm going to go back to being the mom who, I know nobody listens to. And uh, that was really sad. So that so there was what there was a real hunger uh, in my life, a real sort of, you know, restless desire, um, and 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 feeling of like not wanting to let that ambition be extinguished. Okay, so that's one thing. Love the ambition. Okay, thank you. Okay. 
I was at the same time um, doing this mentorship program, which is not, I, it, that doesn't like the, that's what it was called. It's with um, a wise woman who I love very much. She's been very helpful to me in my life. Her name is Pika Trankel. And it was very profound. And sometimes we'd go to her home and we'd garden. Um, she was, it was very much built around the idea of being in nature, which is something that I have very little contact with and very little experience with. Um, so I was coming home on the bus from New Jersey. The origin story begins. Yes. And it was towards the end of the mentorship program. And I was really sad that it was going to be over. It's a, it's a nine month program. And I was listening to Mark Marin. And the reason I was listening to Mark Marin was because my oldest son um, was really interested in Mark Marin. And I wanted to listen so that I knew what he was interested in, and then I could talk to him about it. And, and I, um, I mean, the format of commonplace is basically Mark Marin. But I don't know who that is. Oh, you don't. Okay. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm recommending it or not, but it's a, it's a very, um, he, so he, he's a comedian and, um, sort, sort of like at that point when he started the podcast, like a failed comedian, which is interesting, like put like bookmark that. Okay. Okay. So the other b b important background piece of information is that I really like podcasts. Um, oh, right. So yeah. do you, how many do you listen to a week? Well, it depends on what else I'm doing. So um, I I go through stages where I have a manageable amount of anxiety and an almost unmanageable amount of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And um, I both love living in New York and hate living in New York. And podcasts became really important for me um, in terms of managing some of my um, anxiety, like on the subway or when I'm walking around. There's a way in which it like uh creates like a sphere of attention that helps me feel less overwhelmed by um the sounds of the city the chaos mm -hmm. of the subway um and and also provides a set a, a feeling of like continuing narrative for me so i really can't listen to music Right. Um, that's like super stressful for me i mean i can't there's sometimes i can listen to music but music is is um too emotional for me usually mm. um and also then the song ends and i'm like ah now it's it, it, the transition between one song and another is just too much but if you're listening to a, a like one episode of this american life that gets you to work then you're at work right and then you, you have to do the work thing yeah and also then like if you're in the middle and then you have a bad work day someone's not nice to you you're like well but at least i'll find out how it ends on right. the way home right so great it's a way for you it sounds like it's a way for you to create a type of narrative in your life that, yeah you know like in the same way that maybe when i'm anxious i clean and listen to susan sontag interviews on youtube there's this really soothing aspect of hearing another person's voice but having them not necessarily be paying attention to you or needing anything from you just like things are happening absolutely and, a part of it. and it's so intimate in my in my feeling about mm -hmm. it it's like so intimate um but you're not responsible right so um huh. okay so okay, anyway so back so, on the track, all right yeah. so i listened to a lot of podcasts so it was a forum that i really really loved yeah um 
and both like the kind of more, I don't know what you'd think I'd know what the word is, but um, both like the more um, storytelling ones, like This American Life or Invisibilia or, and then the interview ones. I more the storytelling ones or the narrative ones I, I tended to, to listen to, but I was in this Mark Marin phase because of my son. So I'm listening to Mark Marin and I'm coming home from New Jersey and I've had this like amazing day where I think it was the day where Pika like asked us to set an intention, a private intention, and then she gave us a job in the garden. And I think my, if I'm mem- remembering right, but this might be the origin myth, um, my job was to clear the lavender patch. And I was really scared about knowing what was a weed and what was a flower because I don't have any experience with this. And I and I told Pika that and she was like, you're going to figure it out. You're, it's going to be okay. And then just like notice that fear, like notice how worried you are about like pulling up a flower and not knowing what a weed looks like and just like keep going, keep going. And then it's true. Like I, as soon as I, you know, maybe 10 minutes in, I was like, oh yeah, well this is a weed and this is not a weed and then why we can do it. (laughs) Weed can do it. Yes. Um, So it was, and I, and I don't remember what my intention was, but I think it was something like, how can I find my path? Um, you know, like what it, I, I had specifically not wanted to ask like a question of like, you know, should I keep teaching or find another career or, you know, what's going to happen to my marriage? It was really more like, how can I find even what the right question is almost. Okay. Right, so all right. that stuff's going on and listen to Mark Maron again, really frustrated. It's really crowded on the bus. There's traffic takes forever. And I was texting with my friend, Dan Schiffman, who teaches at ITP. And Dan is like a real booster of mine. Like he's always like, try it, try it, do it, do it. Like no matter what it is. And especially stuff around, like he's he is a maker um, and uses technology to make things. And he like self-published um, his last book, which is a coding book. And whenever I would talk to him about poetry and publishing, he he is like, this is the most antiquated way of going about like making things. Um, so I said to him, um, there's one more thread I'm going to bring up in a second. Um, but I said to him, like, I think I want to start a podcast. And Dan has a YouTube channel. Um, and it's like the most Uh, it's called coding train and it's like the best YouTube channel of all time. I mean, I watch it sometimes, even though I don't know anything about coding. Um, There's all these ways in which listening to him talk about coding helps me think about what I'm making because I don't even understand what he's talking about. I mean, I, I actually could figure it out and I know that, but it's just like watching something in another language. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to answer. I'm going to finish this question because I can't believe I, I'm spending all this time answering this one question. But it, it is a really good question for this purpose. Rachel, your poetics is all about everything <laughs> at the same time. I know. Okay, so the two last parts of this, the two last threads <laughs> all to right. this question of I don't why know did I, I start commonplace? Yeah. Um, I was writing about confessional poetry. I was teaching a class at NYU called The Legacy of the Confessional Impulse. And I had talked to David Trinidad, um, who's a poet that I really love and I've been friends with for a long time. And he had a new book coming out 
um, my student, um, Andy Sanchez from NYU, asked me to do an interview with David for Washington Square. Um, and I was really excited to do that. So, and I hadn't done an, an interview really ever. I had done a, I had done a very, very long failed interview with Sharon Olds, which we can talk about or not later. A failed interview? Yes. Is this in the archive somewhere? It's never, yeah, it's never been published. Okay. I'm um, ready to talk about it. I'm okay. going to write it down. Okay. So, um, so David and I, I knew I didn't want to do, um, do it over email. And, but I'd heard that like doing it via chat, um, that some people liked that. And so we tried to do that and it just, it was just, it just did not work for us. And so David said to me, um, just call me on the phone. I can't, I can't like, I can't handle doing it this way. And so we ended up doing it over the phone and, um, recording it and then Andy transcribed it. Um, and so I just had that experience and it was really exciting to talk to David and really fun to do that interview. And, um, and then, so all these things were in my mind, all these things were happening. The one last thing, uh, was, I think it was May. Oh no, it was April. For sure it was April because I knew I was flying out to Chicago to give my last interview at the end of April before the, the, the big break. And I was going to see David, um, who lives in Chicago and Dan Schiffman was like, just do it, just start it. And, um, and so I was like, I don't know, I don't have the equipment. I don't know how to do it. He's like, just use your phone for now. And I spoke to Dan and I spoke to my son Moses, um, cause who listens to so many podcasts, including Mark Marin, And I just came up like, I was like, I'm going to try it. And the only rule that both of them really urged me to to kind of um engage was to do them face to face not over the phone as i had done with david so i went out to chicago i used my iphone we were in my hotel room and that was the first um ever you know commonplace interview um and then i really was like oh these are not interviews these are conversations that was really important to me and then the the last piece which is very personal as a little bit sad but i'm going to admit it is that i wanted it to air on june 15th um it was that was my 19th anniversary yeah except things weren't going well Oh, got it. (laughs) And I felt not that I wanted to supplant that day with a different anniversary, but I did feel I wanted, I, I, first of all, I knew I would, it was, I knew I would remember that day. Um, It seemed it, it was already an important day to me, but I also felt like maybe it would be good for me to put something into the world that was social and interactive and engaged and ambitious and collaborative. And I think also one of the things that wasn't going well was feeling like nobody was that interested in me. Yeah. And so there was something I think that was both symbolic and literal about uh, it, it definitely in the in the first six months of the podcast and maybe still you know less so but but to some extent you know you get the pod track numbers and then you can see at least how many people have downloaded it 
Who -hmm. knows how many people are actually listening? But I know from emails that somebody is. Right. And um, and so there was this very weird way. And I I didn't realize it until like, you know, several months in in therapy where I was like, oh, my God, did I just start a podcast? So somebody would say they were listening to me. Maybe. Possibly. Yeah. But like, I don't know why that's so different from why I write poetry. Yeah. And also, like, I kind of wonder, like, is it necessarily a um, a bad thing for a woman or a femme to ask to be listened to and to make that happen. Right. Like, I love that you put a stake in the ground basically and was like, I am interesting and people want to talk to me and I want to talk to other people. And this is proof that it happened. Um, but my sense is probably that it was all, it's become a project that has become much bigger than that. Right. And but it's I, been two years, right? It's been, it's yeah, it's, two been, years it's almost two years. It'll be two years in June, oh, June 15th. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that um, a question that Josh asked me early on, my husband, and this goes back to Mark Marin, um, he was really excited about the podcast, like really supportive, really like, you know, uh, liked it that I was doing something um, that was uh, kind of out there, but also like not poetry, um, even though it, it, it's mostly with poets, but it, it has, a, it's a different, it's a different accessibility. It's a different, um, kind of way of being in the world as a poet and, um, something that he could enjoy more than he really likes poets, but he's not a poetry reader. Um, and so, um, he hasn't listened to the podcast for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was It was also a way of talking to him. Right. Um, yeah. You know, through this other uh, You are not the only one who talks to loved ones through their work. <laughs> right. Um, but he asked me early on, like, well, how are you going to feel if you basically only ever get to be remembered or get to be known as commonplace person not as a poet in your own right and you know because mark Marin really was a failed comedian and now he his his career is having like a renaissance and he's in a lot more stuff he's a really good actor actually um but for a long time he was just like he was the podcast guy mm-hmm. and 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 i think josh was worried that i would feel that i that that was like a failure or something and mm-hmm. I think it's a really complicated question um, uh, that to me feels gendered also. Yeah. Um, like, because there's a way in which um, doing the podcast, uh, except for this episode, is more about listening and supporting and um, helping other people have a platform and, and right. putting their work out into the world. Um, and so there, there are ways in which it does, uh, kind of duplicate some of the other frustrations that I have in the other part of my life. Right. Um, but, and so I think he was worried like, Oh, but if you want to be the star, then you're gonna, you know, something about being in the podcast, like it, it, first of all it's a supporting role to be a podcast host in a way and second of all you know will you feel like if people know who you are but they only know who you are because of commonplace that you you're a failed poet i think another thing about it 
is that when you were saying that it was, it's kind of a gendered question, um, it kind of reminds me of um, some of the stuff that you say in your work, which is that uh, I think in the pedestrians, you have a line in a poem where you're saying like, people interview me and always ask me about how I make time to be a writer and juggle it with motherhood. And like, that's not really a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And how is it and why is it that having a podcast and having a platform that supports other people is necessarily about putting yourself in the background or being uh, only a supporter and not being able to have those other roles at the same time. Where I'm, when I'm in a room with another human being and I just, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm like endlessly fascinated in other human beings. And then the, their, their facial expressions, the the questions they ask, the questions they answer, the the things that they won't say or won't do, and like how someone like reveals themselves to you, and 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 like getting to know that person in in this particular way, and and also like knowing that somebody is that that it's for future that other people will be listening. So like, how do you have a conversation? a one-on-one conversation with someone, but also expect that it will be interesting to a stranger. It's kind of conversational doula. Yeah. Like, um, because you are like having a conversation with someone and trying to connect with them and in, in, in the way that you would in any coffee shop, but you've probably, you, for, for your interviews, prepare for them and, or your conversations, I should call them. You prepare for them. You are there for in in a way where you've scheduled this maybe months in advance to talk to this person while they're in town or you're in town with um, where they are. And I'm I'm really curious when you say like uh, you're really fascinated by people because I think I've heard you say that a couple of times in different uh, different arenas of life, like whether it's been in Q and A's or lectures or even in, in commonplace itself, because this is kind of a meta commonplace episode. Um, what, why in particular are you, uh, interested, so interested in other people? Like what draws you to them and what makes you want to bring them out in, in some way, shape or form or help them represent themselves? I mean, I think on some level, my interest in art is really my interest in people Mm -hmm. and the art is an artifact or a record that is a way of getting to know someone or, or imagining the time that a person spent doing this. And so in that reading their poem or looking at their painting or learning about them is, 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 is a similar experience, right? Um, but I think, I think that, um, these conversations, I mean, first of all, it's, it's enabled me to have access to people who, who wouldn't sit down and talk to me, um, otherwise, or who, who would, but 
why would anybody sit in a room together for two hours and have this kind of conversation? And then the things that I find out about them, like the, you know, so many are just like popping into my head, but like Sabrina or a Mark, I'm thinking about her in part because it's like the same time of year that I interviewed her or had this conversation with her last year was like right before Passover. I, I mean, first of all, I had no idea that we'd gone to the same school at different times. I had no idea, you know, that she'd grown up in this incredibly um, Orthodox religious Jewish home. I, I just didn't know these things about her. And then hearing her talk about them and, and, and these stories that she told about her life, like, you know, there are these moments where someone tells you something. I mean, I guess it's like therapy, really. But it's like they tell you something and you're like, oh oh and and it's not like oh now they just like suddenly become clear to you and you figured them out it's just this other level of depth it's like you know it's a it's it's i mean i i think this is some, how some people feel about i don't i don't know like other ways of being in the world like other people have physical ways of being in the world or they have um I don't know, they climb mountains together and they, they don't talk to each other, but they're, but like something about that is this really bonding experience. I, there's something about like being in Tahimba Jess's home and like seeing his books and watching how he moves his body around and, and listening to him talk about his work. I don't know, even know if I'm making any sense at all. Like I, makes sense to me <laughs> I don't know. just keep going <laughs> you know or or it's this it's such a beautiful moment between two people I want to know more and I'm so like honored to be in a in a in a place with you where you're trusting me with this information you know or with or with this like level of communication um, I mean, it's not always positive, um, right. but mostly it has been in incredibly so, you know, from my perspective, it does, it does things for you because it, it keeps you in your comfort zone of like, you're a conversationalist. You're someone who is like conversationally doula a little bit and you like doing that and you like teaching and you like learning about people. Um, at the same time, the podcast becomes a, a key for other people who um, may not ask to be on uh, a podcast um, to to have them feel as though they they get to have space to talk and to reveal parts of their lives with other people who are interested in poetry and interested in what how or, or interested in what the conditions of poets' lives are. Um, the poetry doesn't just come from nowhere. Like there's a very clear sense that I get not only from the ways that you talk to people on your podcast, but also in the work that you put out into the world that, uh, and you can tell me if you're, if I'm wrong, that you have a deep, you have a deep belief that everything that happens in someone's life is just inside of the work. Like, there's no such thing as like compartmentalization of the language that you use and the form that you use and the um the 
the way that your body moves or the way that your face looks or uh, where you are in public transportation at any given moment or what is a weed? Yeah. Oh my gosh, so many things. I mean... This is what happens when we talk. I know. <laughs> this is why we got the pen and <sighs> pen and paper. I know. I'm not writing anything down. <laughs> yeah, I I totally believe that. Um, what I find really interesting is that sometimes someone's artistic work seems like a representation of who they are or their obsessions or the way their body moves through the world um and sometimes it seems like not necessarily the opposite but the way the the um the filter that they use or the or the armature um that they employ to survive being in the world um because you know they they can't be easily um, emotionally accessible and the uh, the things that they make are the ways that they are able to engage emotionally um, with language or with color or with the world and so it's real that's also really interesting to me to see I don't have any like theory um, it's it's more about um, just, feeling really honored to see whether somebody is like their work or not like their work but even if they're not like their work it's exactly what you just said like it's everything about their history um uh comes into their work even if their work is about blocking something about their history even if their whole work is about creating a life that is antithetical to something that happened to them or something that's inside of them or outside of them. Um, so that, that's something that's utterly fascinating to me. Um, I'm also really interested in like dynamics. Um, like I don't actually think that I'm really getting to know anyone. I actually think all that I'm revealing is the dynamic between me and the other person on that particular day in that particular moment. I think another thing that I was really needing at that moment when I started the podcast, but I think that it's, I've realized that I, I've always needed this and Mm -hmm. maybe I always will. And maybe accepting that is that I think that I am a person who, um, over and over again, asks other people how to be. Um, and so whether it's about, you know, are there things you shouldn't write about, you know, are there things you don't write about? Like, you know, that's a question that comes up over and over because it's something that I am really obsessed with. And so I've done that in the past, um, before I had a podcast, like I would ask my writer friends or I would ask anybody who would listen to me, not, it has come to my attention that not everybody goes through life asking every single person they can what what they should do (laughs) but I am that person and it's something that I find embarrassing and then and then other times it's something that I am trying to think about as a strength but the podcast allows me 
to do this thing that is really intrinsic to like the way I move through the world. Um, and I can't, I think I always thought like, well, eventually I'll ask the right person or someone will give me the right answer. And then when I, I won't ever have to ask again, I, I think, you know, at 50 episodes in probably this is just who I am. Like it's connected to my fascination with other human beings or by other human beings. Like right. I'm astounded by the, the unbelievable complexity of every human being I've ever met. And I'm also looking for something. I think that there are things I think that are fucked up about me or wrong or weak or, you know, mistaken. And so I am looking in the relationship or e even if it's not you know, a long relationship, I'm trying to see myself through the other person's eyes. I'm trying to ask them how they live their life. If they have a confidence that I don't have, like, well, how do they get that? What's that about? So that just seems important to put on the table because, you know, there is something sort of transactional to some extent about, about these conversations. Just a really good example for me is like when I spoke to Alice Notley, it's really, it was about um recognizing that the um insecurity and the uh ambivalence and the and like the weakness that i see in myself is also connected to a vulnerability that's a really important part of who i am it's not that alice isn't vulnerable um, but she has she has a conviction that I think I will never, ever have. And there was a way in which like coming into contact with that this past time helped me be both uh, like more interested in like, how can I get some of that? But also, how can I accept that that's not my goal? One thing I think about when you say say that um, this, this need to like ask people about how to be is um my own experience of like living as a woman and how that is basically like the f the femme experience of like if i want to be safe i have to understand all of the limitations and the borders of what i'm allowed to do because if i move outside of those bounds um bad things can happen and i mean that is a that leads to another question which is like three different questions that I need to ask you from all the things that you've just said. Mm -hmm. um, but has something happened on Commonplace or even elsewhere in your career where you have said something bad or not good and people have come at you for it and how have you handled that um, in a way that is both accountable and uh, from a place of learning but mm -hmm. also like what, what are like the things that you've had to think about along lines of like privilege and privilege mostly um, in doing the podcast, um, both privilege and oppression actually of like, there's certain dynamics that happen when I'm sure you talk to like white men and ways that uh, those conversations come to be. Um, has it been difficult and how do you try to balance like uh being aware without uh putting yourself in dangerous positions or putting other people in dangerous positions because it, this is kind of like a a public platform in a way right you know in some ways i feel i feel like i started commonplace to get away from the pressure and responsibility of hurting people in my writing 
And then it, you know, all of these same questions, but in different form came up with commonplace. So, um, like, what is my responsibility when representing, when, you know, allowing someone to be represented on commonplace? Like, what if somebody says something that makes them sound like a jerk? What if someone is a jerk? Um, you know, I do some light editing and, um, I have no interest in making somebody sound jerky and writers are people who generally get to revise. And so I would say that many writers are not that great at speaking extemporaneously and that also the kinds of writers that I, that I talk to sometimes say something to try it out, right? just like in a poem or in a piece of writing, we might take a risk and then we might put it aside and come back to it and be like, I didn't mean that at all. And then we can change it. And, you know, if you say something on the podcast and um, what if you don't mean that? Or what if it came out wrong? Or, you know, um, so that's one thing. Um, But what if you did mean it? And I am not pushing back hard enough. I'm not saying, I don't think that is really an okay thing to do. Or I'm, you know, again, I'm not the person who is judging someone else, but because someone who's listening to this relies on me to push back and ask a question when someone says something, you know, really potentially offensive, um, if I don't, then I've let it stand. And um, the dynamic in the room is is very much influenced by who I'm talking to. So if it's someone who has power over me, if it's somebody who is um, intimidating to me, you know, for whatever reason, because maybe they're super famous, or um, maybe I have like a fangirl feeling about the person, or maybe they you know, run a contest that I might apply for one day, or, um, or maybe they are being intimidating to me, sitting too close, talking too loud, interrupting me. Um, that's happened before people like sit too close to you in a really uncomfortable way. Yeah. Or I've had weird moments of people, you know, it's very, very rare. Um, but you know, people like, you know, tell me something before we start recording that's sort of oddly threatening that I don't even think about until later. Um, so that those are weird moments. Um, and then and then I have to think, you know, uh, and then what could be moments that I am doing to the other person that I'm not aware of? You know, what are what are ways what are things that I you know, what do I give myself permission to take out because I just like didn't mean that at all? Um, or and I'm trying to think of some specific examples, um, you know, without, um, you know, throwing anybody under the bus. Um, the bus is ready. <laughs> I know, but you know, it's really, I, I do, I do deeply, I look, I think there are jerky people in the world. Uh, I, I'm not confused about that. But I also feel that most people are just fucked up. Um, also part of your poetics. Yeah. And I don't, I, it's, I'm not like, I, it's, 
this this is lately you know an issue that comes up with I, I I'll just say because um, this is a famous one that you know I have a long list of of people who I would love to talk to for commonplace people whose work I love um, people who you know um, either I know really well or I don't know at all or they would bring something to commonplace that hasn't been there either in terms of their experience in terms of their identity in terms of their style of work in terms of their all these things and like I want it. I want there to be a real richness of of difference because that's what poetry is, you know, and that's what's like so exciting for me. And even the work that I don't understand, but that like lights me up. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to, you know, wow. So Sherman Alexie was somebody that, you know, was on this list and I had just gotten um, his memoir. Um, and I was interested in particular in, um, I haven't read the memoir yet, but I was interested, it's about his mother. And so of course I'm interested in anybody who writes about their mother. And then I was also interested in, um, I haven't had very many poets on who also write memoir. And I was interested in that, um, like, you know, how is it different and all this stuff. And then all the stories came out about, you know, Sherman Alexie not treating, mm-hmm. um, women very well, particularly native women. And I don't want to, uh give somebody you know a lot of bandwidth um who is mistreating other people um and so what is my responsibility there you know what what i think that's one that's not really about looking at my own privilege and uh, exactly but except that it is because you know, I have to take responsibility for what is said on commonplace and who is on commonplace and the ways in which, you know, I'm representing myself, I'm allowing other people to represent themselves and, and, and who isn't getting heard. So in my selection of guests, in the way that I edit or don't edit, in and then in the way that I prepare, um, and the way that I hope that I, you know, it is hard in the moment to f- be fully aware of like the thing, the questions I'm not asking or I'm not thinking of, or the ways in which I may have brought something up. Like in the Allison Parrish episode, um, I say like a million times, like, oh, and I really want to talk to you about ethics because Allison had this amazing, um, YouTube video that I saw, uh, where she talks a lot about ethics, ethics and coding. And, um, and we just never got to it. And it wasn't because I didn't want to, I just, we really just ran out of time. And then I got like, somebody uh, posted something about the episode and was like, you know, you know, why didn't she ever ask that questions about ethics? You know, was she afraid to ask the questions about ethics? And like, no, I wasn't afraid. I really ran out of time, but that's still my responsibility. Um, and so, um, you know, there are those things, which brings me to the question you asked a million years ago. <laughs> In the Cretaceous period. Yeah, which is whether I've basically been trolled or whether there's been backlash, you know, yeah. or something like that. And, you know, it, it's incredibly common from my understanding, especially for women, but not only for women, um, you know, to, to really have uh, people get very, very upset um, about things they say and 
um, online or on podcasts and stuff like that. And um, I don't think I, I, I'm like afraid almost to admit that I, yeah, we're, we're all knocking on wood. Um, that hasn't been my experience um, so far. And I really hope it won't be. I really would love to continue making this podcast. And I spoke to another podcaster recently who has stopped. Um, and she said it was just, she just got so much hateful response. Um, and I don't know if it's because the podcasts are so long (laughs) and so people who are really hateful have a shorter attention span, (laughs) um, or I don't know, or if it's just too esoteric, like part of me does feel that there's like a difference between when I've, when I'm writing poetry, when, when I'm writing prose, um, I've written, um, so many, what I consider to be like really provocative and straightforward, um, potentially offensive things in poems that nobody's really said anything or gotten that upset about. And, um, when I write prose, um, the bar seems to be much lower. Like people seem to get upset more about prose. And so I don't know where the podcast falls and I don't know to what extent I sort of like subconsciously made a poetry version of a podcast in the sense that like, what, like, like I'm thinking about, um, Aaron Riley, um, like it's different to put up a photograph of yourself, a naked selfie than it is to put up a tapestry of a naked selfie. Um, there's some way in which the translation into another form does in some ways protect you. And I don't know what, I mean, certainly other podcasters are, are not being protected by the form. Um, so I don't know whether, it's about podcasts as a, as a genre or whether within podcasting, um, mine is a, is a, a less in your face somehow. I don't know. Or whether they just haven't gotten to me yet. I, I hope not. <laughs> so on one end, I had a couple of questions. The first of which was, do you work to be responsible for your um, privilege around class in your writing? And how do you how do you think about that if you do? Um, and then there's another conversation that we could be having about uh, this constant judgment that people, I think especially women, uh, come up against when they talk about any types of fe- any type of feeling at all, um, and how those feelings are often uh, tucked away or um, blown away as like something too frivolous to be written about and not important enough to be written about, um, which is something that I really uh, value about your work because you wrote a book about being anxious, <laughs> like. Uh, basically like right. I mean I, the, it's a thread that runs through a lot of your work like I think mental illness is something that we could really talk about more um, because living honestly includes talking about that in your work um, or writing honestly includes talking about that in your work 
Um, so I guess the, oh gosh. So that was like five things or maybe three. Well, I think what I'm learning yeah. in my life, maybe slower than I should, is that, um, many things can be true at once that may have at one point seemed to contradict each other or not be able to, to, to stand together. So I think it's true that there's like real value in, um, the project that I set out to do in my writing. I didn't, I did that, that I, that after I had written a few books, I realized was what I had done and what I mm -hmm. was trying to do because I didn't realize it going into it but mm -hmm. but a few books in I did and then I think that is largely about um, enlarging the frame of what is considered a poem or what is considered a poem worthy of writing and reading and publishing to include um, domestic content to include um, the voice um, of a, a woman who um, has children who spends a lot of time with children, um, who, uh, has a lot of doubt, has a lot of anxiety, feels depressed a lot of the time. Um, and what that interior life is like and what the sort of dailiness of that is like, I'm certainly not the first person to do that. Um, but, and to do it in a way, so it's not just the content, although including that content, I think, um, is really meaningful and important, um, and valuable. Um, but I think it's also, um, doing it in a way that is not heroic. It is also true that, um, I was able to continue writing those poems. I was able to be an adjunct. Um, I was able to have three children and live in New York City um, uh, because I had enough money to do that. I'm able to do this podcast and um, because um, the time that I spend doing it is time I can afford to spend doing it because it right. doesn't make, you know, I'm not working, you know, two full-time jobs or, you know, I, I can do that. Um, not only that, but I have three people who work on this podcast and I pay them. So whatever way you look at it, um, the truth of my life is very much connected to the truth of my class. And, um, you know, and there are all sorts of other privileges and, and other kinds of parts of like my, my, background um, and my present that contribute to that. So, um, you know, I was able to, because I have a partner who will support me in going to New Jersey once a month um, to weed someone's garden and who will watch my children, our children, um, I'm able to do that. Um, that's an incredible luxury. Like, you know, that's, I don't get a certificate for that. I don't get a degree from that. There's nothing that I'm not going to make any money from that. Um, you know, I remember that when I put my two older kids in daycare, um, I, I was one of the only, um, mothers who I was one of the only parents who wasn't a lawyer or a doctor or a professional person, you know, for me to, you know, other parents were only able to write their poems when their kids were napping, 
you know, that that's at most two hours a day. Um, so I didn't have, I didn't have those sets of limitations. I was writing about other kinds of limitations, emotional limitations, logistical limitations, but I didn't have, uh, I had the means to do that. And I think that like, you know, to not, uh, tell that as part of the story is, is like, utterly dishonest and misleading, especially if part of what I'm interested in is um, not being dishonest and misleading in my work, right? Um, You know, and I think, I think there are also ways in which, you know, um, those decisions, which were choices that not everybody had, or has also hurt me, you know, and now I'm not sure I ever can get a tenure track job and I don't have any job security and or I have very minimal job security. And, um, you know, I'm not complaining about that. I'm saying that there are all these, these different really interesting and complicated ways in which, um, you know, uh, I have access to a really good therapist and, Um, I, because of all of these parts of my life, like if I were to become like really severely depressed, someone would notice, um, I have a, an, a safety net that's like both in so many different ways that enables me to take certain kinds of risks, to make certain kinds of like, um, decisions. And so, I mean, even cultural things like, um, you know, I don't come from a religion where I believe in hell. So that enables me a certain kind of security as well. Like I can say how I feel. I can write a book called the bad wife handbook. I can, you know, imagine, um, certain kinds of, um, you know, inappropriate thoughts and feelings. And I come from, you know, uh, a background where deeds are problematic, but thoughts and feelings are not. I mean, they're not sins, they can be problematic. Um, So what kinds of freedoms um, does that afford me? You know, so I don't know, I'm sort of mushing a lot of things together. I'm very interested in your practice of um, self-care and what you do to um, process and create your own work like what is your what does your bubble look like what does your personal house look like if you have one um and sitting in my personal house I know but like the (laughs) metaphorical one okay um because I and especially in uh like in conversation with mental illness and how that in particular um, can often get in the way of intellectual and artistic work. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like the basic functioning of your life, obviously. I am a very, very high functioning, anxious, depressed person who feels very uncomfortable about even calling myself an anxious and depressed person. Right. Um, because I feel like, uh, how can anyone who is so high functioning claim that it's just, it feels, um, insensitive to people who 
are not so high functioning, anxious and depressed people. So, I mean, it's always kind of been this way for me. And as I said, I also have like a lot of resources. So at the times in my life where I really felt, um, you know, not immediately, there was a long period of suffering involved. But at the times in my life where I've been like, this is now over a line. It's not okay. And having kids helped me um, have a different standard for okayness because it's much easier for me to feel like I need to be okay for my kids than I need to be okay for myself. Who cares? You know, if it's just me, who cares? But I think that there's like a... Um, I'm being so roundabout right now. Um, you this makes you uncomfortable, but I know. I'm here with you. I well because you know, yeah. I think, I mean, we had this like very brief text exchange um, the other day where I was saying, I said something about like you know that when I was most uh, uh, unhappy is not is a word I feel comfortable using doesn't really describe it. Um, in college, I got really good grades. Um, it's always been a coping mechanism for me to make lists, to, to come, you know, even commonplace. It's like, I was really having a tough time in my marriage. I was really having a tough time emotionally. Um, and, and it often is stabilizing for me to, um, engage in a project. And I don't always realize that that's what I'm doing, but I have a level of wellness that enables me to, you know, start a project, which is why it feels yucky at best to say, oh, I'm really anxious. I'm really depressed. Cause how could a person who is anxious and depressed start a podcast? And yet I did. So both things are true. And I also recognize that like when I'm feeling very depressed, it's even more difficult for me to say I'm feeling depressed because my depressed brain is like not allowing me to say that. And then there's a bad cycle that happens where it's almost like to prove to myself that I'm allowed to say that I'm either anxious or depressed. It gets worse and worse until I'm like, okay, now I'm actually having a panic attack. And there's there's almost a tiny bit of relief in those moments because I, I think that as horrible as it is, there's also a way in which I'm like, this is real. Well, that's, that's definitely part of the value of um, like poems like Pedestrian where it is really about like allowing that anxiety and that depression to exist. And you were saying earlier in this interview that when you, when something's going on with you and you can't say it, it, it's like, it suffocates you Mm -hmm. and not being able to talk about mental illness. Um, it's also very similar to reprimanding yourself, um, in the ways that people may have talked to you about class of like, how could you say, how could you be complaining about any of these things when you have all this other stuff when in reading Tumblr memes, as I do sometimes, like <laughs> Tumblr says that we will tell ourselves that something worse is happening in the world in order to sublimate what is actually happening to us. And um, we have a very 
rigid idea of what is acceptably healthy that prevents us from kind of confronting what might be actually overwhelming um, that does need to be talked about but only becomes overwhelming because you don't talk about it and it's this cycle of like pushing it further and further down until you've kind of dug this dug this deep well of stuff that needs to come out um, and that also reminds me of um, just like domestic violence for example uh, there are things that we don't count necessarily as violence that may, maybe we should be and that we should be talking about and that's really like for me the kind of like the political aspect of a lot of the stuff that you're writing which is just like why don't we just include everything and what like can that be valuable in itself yeah I think that's two things one is it I have seen it for myself and definitely for other people how life-saving and organizing it can be to have a diagnosis and to feel like oh you know this isn't I'm sick you know or mm -hmm. this isn't me or I'm not at fault or I'm not it's I'm not it's not that I'm not trying hard enough at the same time I think that um there's something really interesting to me also about of, of sometimes wanting to push back away from the term mental illness, not because of the stigma um, and, and the whole concept of diagnoses, because um, we all are so weird. Mm -hmm. And and to say that there's normal and then there's ill right. is to is to I mean, yeah, there are there are definitely times when, you know, I'm like this is not okay. I can't function like this. I'm having a panic panic attack. I'm not going to write a poem about this panic attack or in the middle of the panic attack or I'm not, you know, I'm all I want to do is lie in bed and watch TV. It's not interesting. It's not a poem. There are other times where I think why is everybody write their poems as if they think one thing at a time in a linear fashion? That's certainly not how I think. And, and I want to include that. Not, and it's not a value judgment. It's not like, oh, this is interesting. This kind of anxiety, this level of anxiety is interesting. But just to like enlarge, like some people think like this and it's like constantly neurotic and, you know, overlapping thoughts and like distracted and this and that. And, you know, like their attention does works in this way and other people, it works in this other way. And like, you know, you can tell, or at least I can, I can tell, uh, there's a different vibe when I talk to someone on, on commonplace whether they are leaning towards mania or leaning towards depression I'm not talking about actual bipolar disorder I'm talking about um, there's different temperaments there's different and some people might actually be manic or what the what fulfills the diagnosis for that and some people are actually depressed but I also think that our understanding of what is quote-unquote normal mm -hmm. is that like, I don't even know what that means Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think like, I don't know, I just, I, that's something for some reason that's important to me to say also like to make space for the ways in which 
within mental wellness or within right. health, right. people have a really, really beautiful range of ways of being in the world. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and to and to like try to think about like sometimes my way of being in the world is not healthy for me, and sometimes it might be annoying to someone else, but it might be fine. Right. Yeah, I think this is a really, really fascinating, like, like this is a fundamental part of my work. And I mm -hmm. think some of the shame comes from this part of my work. But yeah, I mean, like I wrote a whole book about my mother and I didn't have an abusive mother. Yeah. And I think that there is that. like yeah. a feeling at, for writers, particularly memoir and poetry to a lesser extent, but also poetry, where it's like, you don't have permission to write about certain kinds of content if it's not, um, if you're not writing about trauma. You know, being a white person and writing about your life might be just like a total waste of time for, for somebody to read that might just not be what they're looking for. That might not be what they need. It might not be what they're interested in. But I definitely don't want to live in a world where either I or anyone else feels like they can only write about the most damaged part of themselves or the trauma that they had or or go out and look for trauma my god I really don't want that because you know I feel like um I've been extremely lucky um in my life in all of these different ways um but and not but and I think that to some extent not having been um, a victim of domestic violence for example um, enables me to write about some of the emotional violence of marriage of a very long marriage that I think would be a very different kind of consideration of attachment, um, separation, individuation, independence, connection, um, boredom, uh, desire, um, restlessness. Um, like what are, how are those um, things at play in a quote unquote normal marriage in one in which like how much, how much, monotony and boredom is inherent in in parenting um that's not to say that you know is okay to complain <laughs> um it's not it's gross um and it's and it's thoughtless um but i do think that um i yeah i think i think that that's what i did i think i wrote a lot of books about um what are the feelings what is what is the range of feelings um that are surprising and you know i didn't know i was going to have them and other people maybe didn't know they were going to have them um of a kind of uh not so traumatic life and i think that's annoying and boring to some people and for other people really uh, meaningful and important to hear um so and sometimes I feel good about that and sometimes I feel really embarrassed about it well on that's that what note, I did with my life <laughs> um, um I feel like I still so you you kind of answered one of these um 
who is your audience now and who would you like your audience to be? Um, I'm really interested in kind of what it's like behind the scenes of the reception for the podcast and um, who the work is really helping mm-hmm. at the moment. I, I really love the idea that it would be a community um not just like a product i mean i think that there are people um you know either on twitter or the patrons do have communication with each other um and i love the way that like we have links to texts and stuff that people um that people talk about on the on the show um and some of my favorite emails are from people who can't afford to go to an mfa program don't want to go to an mfa program you know or have been to an mfa program but you know were either kind of harmed by it in in some way or another or have moved abroad or they they are not able to find a literary community and um that commonplace is providing them with a sense of literary community and with, um, you know, a, a, they feel included in that, not just like, oh, I saw a good movie and it helped me pass the time or it helped me not be anxious on the subway. But there's something that for some people um, is helping them feel um included, you know, or that they think, oh, I also have that problem, or I don't write every day. And, or yes, I do write every day, or, huh, that's how Rita Dove does it. So when she gets stuck, she always goes to form. Okay, well, I'm stuck. So I'm going to go to form and see what happens. Or like, wow, I loved Inez Smith's work, but I didn't realize that they're always writing sonnets. Like, you know, what, what, you know, to, to, to be kind of, um, you know, in the room where it happens to quote Hamilton, um, you know, to some extent, like, I think that's, that's the most important thing. So anything that can make that happen more, anything that moves it towards more community, more interaction, more, um, less hierarchy, uh, more input, uh, um, more conversation, like on every level, seems really great. This is Nicholas Fuenzalita, one of the producers at Commonplace. I met Rachel while studying at NYU as an MFA candidate in poetry. I took two classes with her, and she was my thesis advisor. After her conversation with Yin Yi, Rachel asked her husband, Josh Gorin, to speak with her about the podcast, his view of it, her view of it, how it fits into their relationship or challenges it, and what Josh would like to see more of in future episodes. We've excerpted the most salient moments here in which they discuss the different selves Josh sees Rachel perform when she reads her poems, her lectures, as a podcast host, and as a mother and wife. Here are Rachel and Josh. I was wondering... Okay, there's the story that you tell about how when you wrote the Modern Love piece, when you published the Modern Love piece, people reacted to it differently than they ever had to your poetry, even though you felt that the content of your poetry is more revealing and personal and problematic or potentially uh, disruptive than what was in the modern love piece. And that's, this was an, you wondered whether or not it was about, what, what that was about, whether it was about the wider public audience, whether it was about 
the difference between poetry and prose. And I was wondering whether or not com how commonplace fits into that. Whether you're hiding yourself a little bit in commonplace because you know that it actually, I imagine you would feel that it fits into more the modern love prose side of that dichotomy or whether or not you aren't, whether you don't feel that you're hiding yourself or if that's not the right way of describing it. Um, well, I have the amazing opportunity right this minute <laughs> to turn that right around. I mean of everyone in the audience, you would know what I would be hiding if I was hiding something. So, you know, you get to see me at home, you get to read my books of poems, you get to re obviously read the modern love piece, which was about both of us. Uh, and you um, hear these commonplace episodes. So do I seem the same to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do I seem like I'm hiding? Well, in? yes, on some level. Okay. I mean, are we all, I mean, maybe that's just a fact of any kind of artifice or public. Your poems are definitely playing with that game a little bit. Although people, I think some people in your audience are recognizing like real sharp truths. But even then... The specifics are not all there. The whole picture is not there. Yeah, you're, and then in commonplace, it's like not, it's kind of in the structure of it itself. It's not really about you. You're interviewing other people. Yeah, sure, there are moments when you share something that's something about yourself a lot, a lot of moments, and that's part of what's good about commonplace. But you, part of what I, now, am I asking you a question? I might, I wonder whether or not I actually feel now that I'm talking it through, like if I would actually like to urge you to be more raw even than you think you may have been already on your podcast but like what what do you even mean exactly by raw do you mean the moments that I make a mistake or embarrass myself or reveal something that I shouldn't or is there is there another like thing that I'm not uh you know accessing in the podcast like, what is, what do you mean by, what is the thing? Well, I think you have a special skill. I, I feel you have a special skill of saying something that everyone immediately recognizes to be true and that, and that somehow no one was thinking or perceiving. And, but it requires a, a real, like, risk-taking. And I think it is probably happening on the podcast I don't think it's necessarily about revealing something about yourself, although I think it often involves that. It often involves sharing something. It is like a rule-breaking gesture sometimes. It's like a saying of something that... So for you, sometimes that has been to say something about our family life. or Sometimes it is about revealing something, or but often it's about revealing a feeling. Like if this is, if this is a conversation about commonplace, like what... It isn't necessarily going to be in the realm of revealing something about yourself mm -hmm. or even about in a poem. It wouldn't necessarily only be about yourself, but about your perception of some societal structure or like some thing that you observed in the world. Mm -hmm. It would be about the other person and the, and the conver or the conversation or the topic that you were it would be more interactive. Like, are, have those moments occurred? 
I feel like they occur in every episode, mm-hmm. but maybe, maybe, well, I mean, you listened to the first, some of them. Mm-hmm. Did you not feel like that was happening? I mean, some of, I, I feel like they happen, but I also, uh, one of the other pressures on you is the friendliness of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that is socially <laughs> like inevitable, <laughs> like, of course, like, uh-huh. um, and I want, I, I, I have a fantasy that there would be uh, an episode that was more combative, you know, or that was more like. Other than this one. <laughs> <laughs> this one should be more combative. <laughs> this is totally fake. <laughs> so you said, I'll ask the questions here. You said one time, uh, uh, more than one time, and this is something we've argued about, um, that you didn't like my lecture voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how d- are my, are the podcasts in my lecture voice or sometimes so it creeps in and it creeps in and out. I guess that's right. You know, I actually, so, so there's different voices. There's the poem voice, mm-hmm. which I've always loved does not feel, I understand that it is a performance voice also, but somehow it's not, it always feels like, I don't know, like if you were a rapper or a singer, of course, you're sing. You don't sing your way through life or rap your way through life. But when it's good, I would just I would be like it has pe- like that power. And I've always felt that way about your poems, especially when I hear you read them. Especially when I hear you read them to an audience. What I call the lecture voice feels cautious and like a little bit kowtowing, careful. And I, yeah, on on commonplace, there are moments of all of the different kinds of voices, but yeah, I don't like, I don't, I hate to feel like you're on, like you're being careful. I don't want you to be blunted. Mm-hmm. I don't want, well, okay. I mean, you can't okay, be, okay, yeah. okay. 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 One thing that's obviously completely different about commonplace than writing poems or writing prose is that another person is sitting in the room yeah. with me, you know, in real time, face to face. And so I think you're absolutely right. There's like a completely different set of um, ac- like uh, responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And and so the the thing that you like about my work, especially my poetry, is that I guess it pretends that even if someone were sitting in the same room with me, so to speak, in the poem, that I would say the really horrible thing. Well, it's interesting because in Commonplace, there's two different audiences. There's mm-hmm, the person I'm mm-hmm. in the room with, and then there's the future listener. Yeah. Um, and then there's also like Christine, Nicholas, and James. You know, it sort of sounds like what you want to encourage uh, in me uh, and for me in terms of the podcast and in terms of my work is to be more uh, fearless to be you know wicked to, is a word i use okay like, wicked yeah uh and to have it be more about myself which is interesting because i feel that in the other part of our life which is to say the whole part of our <laughs> life you are um it's hard for you not to uh, reward the 
other part, which you're criticizing now, which is a more supportive role, as a more receptive role, is a more listening role, which I think is my primary role with you, with the kids, with my teaching, and maybe you're saying too much so with the podcast. Like, you know, I'm in a very similar position in all of those relationships where I'm primarily not self-presenting and performing, but like, you know, listening, asking questions, making connections, figuring out uh, how to draw the other Mm -hmm. person out. In your experience of me in our personal life, wouldn't you say I'm a good listener? So therefore, the fact that, that I did do this podcast, which is really a lot of it, you know, most of it is about listening, not about whatever, you know, not about this thing that you're describing that you like in my poetry. Mm-hmm. But don't like if you like you, yeah. the poems are five percent of our life together. Ninety five percent of it. I feel like I'm in a I'm in a listener mm-hmm. mode. And this I have said to you before, like that, you know, six months into doing the podcast, I wondered to myself, like, wait, did I just make a whole podcast because I felt like my husband wasn't listening to me and my kids weren't listening to me? And so, you know, and didn't seem to find me interesting. But like now I have pod track numbers so I can see how many people at least are downloading it, maybe mm-hmm. even listening. Like I download it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's so wrong, that interruption. <laughs> um, you know, like, did I did I basically, you know, find a way to be listened to, even if most most of the pot of the podcast is not really about me, but about, you know, me presenting, you know, these other people, um, but also like even in the in the recording of them. Well, do you feel satisfied? Did you get what you need? <laughs> hey, this is James Siano, also a producer here at Commonplace. Like Christina Nicholas, I too was a student of Rachel's at NYU for my MFA. Want to hear more of Josh and Rachel's conversation? Consider becoming a patron today. Already a patron? Patrons will have access to a less abridged version of the conversation between Josh and Rachel on our Patreon site. Patrons also will have access to sound files of Rachel reading her poem Pedestrian and Yanni reading two poems from his forthcoming book, A Year of Blue Water. Patrons can access a PDF of Yanni's chaplet diary published by Belladonna. Thank you, Belladonna, for offering us that. All active patrons will be entered to win one of the following items in our next raffle. Copies of Starting Today and of Women Poets on Mentorship, courtesy of University of Iowa Press, Rachel's books The Bad Wife Handbook, Eating in the Underworld, and Last Clear Narrative, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press, The Pedestrians and Museum of Accidents, courtesy of Wave Books, and Home Birth, A Poemic, and Mothers, courtesy of Rachel herself. A big thank you to all the presses. Patrons also will be entered to win a limited edition chapbook of the 2015 Poets House Fellows, designed and with contributing work by me. For more on Commonplace, visit our website, commonpodcast.com. To become a patron, sign up at patreon.com slash commonplace podcast. A few days after the initial recording, Rachel and Yanyi recorded this phone call follow-up. 
Rachel was concerned that she had talked too much in the initial conversation, and that it had really sounded more like an interview. For the first part of the phone call, they talk about this, and about Rachel's theories as to why she may have spoken too much, and what kinds of things about herself and about Yinyi were left undiscussed. We pick up this phone call now, about 20 minutes in. Do you want to talk about the mentorship first? Um, yeah, let's talk about that first. It would be valuable, for example, for people to know that uh, I, I chose you specifically to be my mentor because I did not know you at all when I picked you, like, as a person. Mm-hmm. I knew I had read some of your work, um, and I saw you on a panel at Sarah Lawrence, and mm-hmm. before that, my only contact with you had been I'd gone to a reading at NYU, um, and you were reading, and I accidentally sat next to you um, during the reading, and you told me about how you liked it when reading started on time. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I just rem- like that. Is, I I remembered that because that was something that I also was like. I think that's really true too. Like it would be a lot more considerate for the people who like planned and got here on time that the reading starts on time. Like, <laughs> and uh, you introduced me to Josh actually that night because he was <laughs> sitting next to you. Oh wow! And um, and then you went up and did your reading, and I was like, I just met him in this poet. I think that must that must have been in like 2014 or something. I feel like you just came out with the pedestrians at the time, uh-huh. and you were reading from that. Um, but that is my first memory of you. And um, uh, the second time, I feel like I really saw you. Um, uh, or like my second like intense memory of you is like you were speaking at Sarah Lawrence on a panel on hybridity because I was just starting to kind of look around for a mentor of like who would I want to work with um, and I just remember <clears throat> of all the people who are speaking on that panel hybridity is something I'm very interested in mm-hmm. uh, poetically and I thought that I I loved the way that you thought about the topic the most. I remember that you had prepared remarks and that you, you had really thought about it in a way that made me feel as though uh, I, I felt like I, I saw a little bit of what your process might be like as a writer. And you're someone very similar to this conversation actually who will really, like, try and get at everything, like, sweep all the corners type of person. <laughs> um, and, and the ways that you do that is by asking a lot of questions. Um, and that was mainly what your remarks about hybridity were, of, like, how can we know what it is? And um, after, after the panel, I introduced myself to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I requested you at the workshop right after that. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a very specific, like, um, interest in your intellectual practice. Um, Can I ask you about mm-hmm. that, even though it's uncomfortable yeah. for me? What is it that you, were, that you were hoping to get 
um, from the mentor um, program and relationship and then specifically from from me or or your mentor um, specifically I was looking for someone who was uh, who could be an intellectual partner for me mm-hmm. um, and collaborator with me I really wanted someone who was kind of open to anything mm-hmm. um, I I had also heard, and I don't know where I heard this from, but I heard that you were an incredible teacher. Um, and that's something that, that to me, like that shows a lot of what your values are as, as a writer and as a person who moves through the world. Um, I think teaching is one of the most undervalued and most important vocations that exist in poetry and outside of poetry. Um, and, and then, and I, I wanted someone who was a good teacher or someone who had demonstrably done, been doing service around those things. Because to me that, that, that is a, a value alignment for me. And I wanted to work with someone who aligned with me and around what type of poetry community I wanted to cultivate and be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that those were the, the main things. And I don't, I don't remember if I started listening to Commonplace before or after I met you. Interesting. Um, is the thing. And I don't remember how much we talked about this in our other conversation, but so you asked mm-hmm. for me, and then I got this really lovely invitation um, from the Asian American Writers Workshop, um, and then and it included initially a selection of your work, um, a pretty short selection, and yeah. um, I was like really flummoxed about what to do because. Um, I really was super interested in wanting to be a mentor in wanting to be a mentor um, to someone outside of the, um, of the normal academic, you know, job that I have, Um, Mm -hmm. like to feel what that was like when I wasn't someone's like thesis advisor or or someone's teacher. Um, And I also Mm -hmm. like really specifically, um, I really like the Asian American Writers Workshop as an organization, Um, like just the the, um, interactions I've had with it and and, um, like events I've gone to and stuff. And so I really wanted to do anything I could to like participate and support that organization. Um, And like especially like in part because it's a non-academic, non-degree granting organization, which I feel really interested in. Um, Yeah. But then specifically, like, I really loved your work. And as soon as I was like, yeah, I totally want to do this, um, it was not so simple because um, I'm not Asian American. Um, I'm white. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, I really want to be careful about not taking up the resources of this organization or not inserting myself into this relationship um, or this organization inappropriately. Um, And on top of that, one of your poems in specific, in particular, all of your poems to some extent, but one of them in particular, was very much about kind of the. Uh, and I don't, ha- I haven't read it since that time, so I, I'm not going to remember exactly. But um, it was a prose poem, at an, and it was about whiteness, and it was about like white people being blind to their own whiteness. 
um, mm-hmm. and um, it had like um, emails um, mm-hmm. or like excerpts from emails. And I and so one of my first thoughts was like, wait, is this a trick? <laughs> like, am, mm-hmm. am I? Is am it a test? Yes. <laughs> But like, am I or am I part of a performance art piece, which I wouldn't necessarily right. be upset about? But I was like, oh, <laughs> so my ha- my response to this email could very well be, you know, if I'm not thoughtful, uh, or even if I am thoughtful, um, one of the emails that Yinyi then puts in his work. Right. Um, like how how am I not how can I participate but not necessarily as like a person blind to her own whiteness, <laughs> which is not my right. favorite way of participating. Um, yep. And also not at all what I felt would be like a, um, you know, a, a positive mentorship relationship for you. And, and I also think I thought about um, like often um, pregnant people will ask to have a doula um, who is the same ethnicity or same, you know, background as they are. Um, yeah. it's, it's not always, but sometimes that's, that's comforting and useful. Um, and so there were a lot of thoughts that I had around that question. I encountered your work in a very specific and interesting and, like, provocative set of circumstances. It wasn't like I didn't read your work um, you know, in a journal or in a contest or like it was, it was like, here is some work and do you want, and I was reading it in the context of this question of the mm-hmm. mentorship. Right, right. And it was, an, also it was a, it was like kind of two things. It was both an opportunity and also like, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, uh, for me, it was also like a question of like, do I use my opportunity at Asian American Writers Workshop to ask someone who is not Asian American to be my mentor? Mm-hmm. Um, which was a big question for me. And ultimately, like, uh, I had to think about my history of uh, being in white spaces. Like, I graduated from Columbia. I am from the Midwest. Like, I was indoctrinated in a lot of ways in... Uh, in the suburbs of whiteness and then the institutions of whiteness. So like I had to think about like, okay, well I'm, I specifically like applied for the Asian American Writers Workshop fellowship so that I could be part of a community that was not centered around whiteness. Um, So what would it mean for me to pick someone who is white or just even just like not Asian American? Um, Mm -hmm. Would that be me wasting my opportunity? And uh, I think it is really, like, um, it is really valuable for me to have understood and experienced a a friendship at that time with someone who is white who um, really taught me that investment and care and intimacy can happen between people who are not of the same ethnicity and that under, even understanding, um, even if it's not from the same experiences, can happen. And that you and I, that it made it possible for like 
you and I to be invested in each other and to be thinking about the harder questions of our individual existences apart from each other um, together. Like it would, like that was a possibility to me. Um, and I respected the way that you thought and I respected uh, what you were doing in the world. Um, in addition to knowing what I did about your work, which was mostly like how much you, how much you strove to talk about as many parts of your life and specifically the lives of women uh, as possible, uh, like how doing that as much as possible um, and having uh, invested a lot in um, this friendship with someone who is uh, femme, um, not necessarily a woman, but like understanding that there are a lot of life experiences that I myself did not experience as a masculine woman. Um, like it, your work became very important uh, as some something I wanted to be in conversation with myself intellectually and poetically, but also just like in terms of investment, uh, uh, investment in a person. Um, and I feel really grateful for our relationship and what it's turned into. I think it's so interesting because the way that we came together was both around, and maybe this is always the case, but it's like just so interesting the way it's visible in, in our situation. Like mm -hmm. the way that we came together around our similarities, but also our differences are like so... Um, uh, such an important um, uh, part of like the architecture of our relationship, right? Like so clearly, you know, there's an affinity between both of us write about our lives. We write about like mm -hmm. real people. We write in a kind of like daily, I mean, your book that's going to come out has a kind of quality of like a, it has like a journal quality. It has like a dailiness, a, a, a description of the real world and engagement in the real world. It's not, you know, neither of us right now is writing a kind of high lyric, abstract, removed, you know, metrical, rhymed kind of poetry. Um, mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't mean we don't like dip into that sometimes or we might never, but that's not what either of us is like really doing right this minute. Um, right. And so all of that is, you know, like wanting someone to be a collaborator, um, uh, wanting, you know, somebody to be uh, an intellectual uh, companion. Um, mm -hmm. And all of those things are, are like different different things that have to do with similarity, I feel like. Um, right. And then, but then because it was, you know, through the Asian American Writers Workshop and you had to ask yourself, like, am I missing an opportunity here? Am I, like, wasting, you know, part of this experience to, to, to like, continue to stay in a space and, and make a relationship in which whiteness won't be centered – and I also was, you know, like, well, am I taking someone else's opportunity here? Or is it going to be, like, what will it feel like for Yin Yi? What will it feel like for me? Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, 
so so our whole relationship started and in some ways like still has that piece of it of like the di- that 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 difference of ethnicity and then there's the gender piece of it which i think you know can yeah. we talk about that too yeah i mean that that part is like super it's complicated in its own way of like like there are experiences of womanhood that you have and will experience have and will experience that I never experienced and will never experience. And then also there's the gender thing of like, I'm trans. So like there's a whole experience around uh, transition and understanding my own relationship to my body that you may not have to, you may not, not have to go through in the direction that I went through it. I think like, and then, I will never be pregnant and I'll never be like a biological mother to anyone. Um, So that's something that I think is related to gender. But I, I mean, like I, I really like, I'm really curious as to like how you conceptualize motherhood. Like, is it a gender? Is it a role? Is it a, is it a place of transition? Like, um, like to, you know, uh, get pregnant, watch your body change, feel your body change in very acute ways. Um, and then to like go, uh, then to give birth and to have a different body. Like there's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, there's all these changes that happen within that are kind of acceptable within the structures of patriarchy of like a woman's body will change at this time, but it's really like a whole, it's a transformation of sorts um, like that does change the conditions of your life, I would assume. Mm -hmm. And not temporarily, like there's lasting effects afterwards. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. So we haven't really ever talked about that stuff, which is fascinating to me. Um, I have to record a whole other podcast. I know. I was going to (laughs) say, we can connect uh, in in terms of of similarity and in terms of difference, and um, mm-hmm. we can also disconnect or misunderstand each other, or misunderstand ourselves, or hurt each other along lines of separate of of um, similarity and difference, and that is also what I'm trying to write about in my poems and in my critical work. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's also a way in which, like, our relationship, and on the podcast, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, like, in a huge way. And so our relationship is like a physical manifestation of some of these, like, intellectual and literary interests, concerns, you know, obsessions. And I think like in so and in ways that we're like just starting to think about and and explore and each one of these by these, I mean, uh, modes of exploration, including writing poems, making a podcast, um, talking to another human being, um, uh, mothering a person like all like all these all these different kinds of ways um, or just like daydreaming, like whatever it is, have different um, like 
opportunities and consequences and like dangers and benefits, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think yeah, yeah, that yeah. like, I think that then I think, I think I was like, oh, this is so great. I'll ask Yinyi to have a podcast conversation with me. And it is great, but also I must be crazy because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's, I can't even describe how I would even conceptualize the three-dimensional shape that I'm trying to construct as a model of both our relationship and also like the whole world and how I and you separately and together fit into that shape. Yeah. It's, well, like, I think that, I think that what's truly fascinating about our relationship, a lot of what you've said kind of touches on it of like how we have, how we have these similarities, but we can't see the similarities without the difference. Like you can't see my, you don't really see my gender without my race. Like there's no such thing as gender without race. And like in the same way that I can't see your gender and your expressions of gender without race of like white femininity, white femininity is a toxic thing that hurts women um, who are inside of it. And then also hurts like it, hurts women who are like white femininity is a type of toxic femininity. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that like, well, what does it mean for me to be trans and Chinese? Like how, like there's so little, um, like I have rarely thought about conceptions of gender outside of patriarchal Chinese or the patriarchal Chinese culture that I personally grew up in, in my, in the house that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. But like, I know that historically that there are different conceptions of gender in Chinese history. So like, which one is the real one, which one is more authentic? Um, and which one, like, is it the one that I kind of like measure my gender against? Or is it this like, like if I were to talk about the, thing that the workshop has really given to me, it's been a, the opportunity to redefine and self-define what my heritage looks like and how I integrate it into my life. Hmm. Um, and so there isn't like, it's not that there's one more authentic thing. There's no, there's not one more authentic experience of gender in, as a Chinese person for me. It's that, uh, in the same way that I'm transforming my body and my conception of myself, I can transform the history that I self-identify with. Um, and, 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 and I can transform the ways that I decide to um, create relationships with people who I have thought were different from me, but who are not necessarily so, which kind of sounds like, like liberal, kind of white liberal bullshit. But, like, um, I think it's very challenging to construct a reality that can include a diversity of experiences and voices without diminishing some of them or making it so that some of them are standing on the shoulders of others, et cetera. Um, So one of the feelings that I always have when we have conversations is that there's so much to say and we don't have time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like, 
um, I left our conversation uh, last weekend kind of feeling that way of like, oh, I had all these questions to ask you, but the things that we talked about are also genuinely things that I wanted to know about. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you all those questions about the podcast. I wanted to ask the follow-up questions that I asked. Um, it's not that you're too much. It's that you're willing to, like, you're willing to do the full sweep. You're willing to, like, get as deep into that thing that you can go and try and go even further than what you believe is capable, uh, what you believe you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that kind of feels like is that we're having, like, long conversations and you're the only one talking, but, like, I know that you care about me and that at some point we're going to have a conversation, like, right now, where it's just, like, me talking a lot about my feelings. And mm-hmm. there's going to be room in our relationship for that. Um, so... The thing about conversations like commonplace is that we can't reconstruct our relationship inside of a less than two hour podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't accurately represent it there. And frankly, like people don't get to be inside of it for like other people won't get to be inside of it because they're not living it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's like one of the very valuable things about, conversations like that existing in the world is just like for me it's like a reminder of like wow like other people in the world can like I can cultivate relationships with other people in the world where conversations like this can be possible and Mm. as many of them as possible um I think my best relationships are like that um and that's that's kind of what my poetics the poetics of my book are about of like there, there's this feeling of reading through it of like, I, I wrote like 350 or 400, three, I think it was like 349 or something, um, poems for that book. And the final page count was more like 72. Mm-hmm. And um, I chose the things that I chose because not everyone needs to know uh, what I copied and pasted from my horoscope on a given week. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because uh, not having everything, and I think this is where I, where our poetics may differ a little bit, um, although I do think that you edit and you choose carefully like what you present to the world. Um, but there is a sense for me of like, I don't want people to know like as much as, as possible about what hap- what was going on for me or what was happening like the point is to feel like there's a sense of endlessness and that there's more mm-hmm. because there is like you, you can't just read a book and like get what you need for your entire life. Like you have to have conversations like this and do that over and over again. Um, and that's what makes a life. Hi, um, this is Dan Schiffman. I'm a commonplace advisor, although I don't think typically I give very good advice. Actually, I think I once told Rachel to improvise and not read from a script, which is what I'm doing right now, even though there's a script in front of me, which is clearly bad advice. So let me get back to the script. Uh, thanks for listening to this special episode of Inside Commonplace with Rachel Zucker, Judah, 
Yin Yi, Josh Gorin, and the Commonplace producers, Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalida, and James Ciano. Did you actually make it all the way through this episode? If so, I'm kind of curious. I want to do a little uh, unscientific survey here. Tweet hashtag inside commonplace. Let's see if anyone's actually listening to me uh, at this point in the episode. Um, so a big, huge thank you to all the patrons who support Commonplace and the presses who send us books. Thank you to Moses, one of my favorite people in the universe, for writing this cool song. Um, I have a message from your mother who would like you to know that as much as she likes this one, she is in fact ready for a new one. And to all of you listeners, thank you for listening. Just the mere fact of listening is something that keeps this wonderful, beautiful, amazing podcast going. I'm so honored and thrilled to have gotten to say something. I feel awkward like I I should wrap this up now. I'm just going to wrap this up and say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody.